You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. This is episode 28, an inquiry on yoga and money. I have been kind of hemming and hawing about this episode. It's been building in me, but I'm a little nervous about it. Money's kind of a forbidden topic in some spaces in the yoga world. In this episode, I'm going to share my inquiry into how what my understanding of the teachings of yoga apply to the topic of money means and financial abundance. There are definitely people out there who believe in their hearts, in their huge, beautiful hearts, that it's unethical to charge money for yoga. On the other end of the spectrum, there are also people who are making a lot of money using the word yoga and the image of yoga on a really surface level. In between, there are thousands and thousands of yoga teachers who wish to share their understanding of yoga in a way that serves their students and also pays at least some of their bills, maybe all of them, maybe all of them and then some. While I can empathize with and appreciate this idea that money should not be a part of the equation of sharing yoga, the actual practical application of this idea in my mind, is fundamentally privileged. If a teacher has the resources to teach yoga for free, that means that all their basic needs are met. And this is wonderful. Whether you have another job that pays the bills, whether you've saved for retirement, or are supported by a spouse, let's be real that having the bandwidth to take on Teaching yoga for free is a unique situation. It is not common. The fact that someone in that situation would choose to teach yoga is wonderful and admirable. But I think it's important not to extrapolate one situation, one person's ability to the majority. Because most of us who live and breathe yoga need to earn at least a portion of our income from teaching in order to justify the time that it takes to dive deeply into this practice. I want to be clear from the beginning that my view on money and yoga is that you can't sell yoga. Yoga is a process of reintegration. It's a process of remembering a state of wholeness that's already true. Aside from some guru traditions who might teach that the way to wholeness is through a guru— Most yoga teachers, at least that I come into contact with, acknowledge that this process of reintegration is personal. So you cannot sell yoga. You can sell assistance and you can sell the idea of yoga. And these are two different things. Now, some people get upset or even outraged by the association of yoga and business, which is part of why I feel the need to talk about it so much. Maybe they believe that applying business principles to teaching yoga taints the purity of the teachings. And I will say that from my perspective, 
I don't view the teachings as being pure in and of themselves. They were transmitted through humans. I, I, I guess I don't have a particularly deity-driven understanding of yoga. So that's not been my focus, and that's not my belief system. My belief system is that humans invented yoga to help us manage our minds, to help us manage the tendencies of humanity that allowed us to survive, but sometimes prevent us from thriving. So I can definitely see the risk of the idea of turning yoga into a commodity that, you know, that's doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel good. But the teachings of yoga are available to all for free through the miracle of the internet. There's no way, nobody is holding back the teachings and saying, hey, give me money and then I will share the teachings of yoga with you. I mean, some people might say that, but you can say, haha, whatever, I can go read the Bhagavad Gita by myself. <laughs> so it's interpretation, it's assistance that we are selling structure, help, guidance in applying those principles. I do not believe that there's anything inherently wrong or immoral about charging for your time, your knowledge, and your energy. And I also think that the yogic texts and the yogic teachings support this. I also believe that charging for your assistance in experiencing yoga can be beneficial not just for the teacher, but also for the student. In our culture, most people value what they pay for. So while the teachings are free, it's still a minority of people who are going to dive into all those free resources and teach themselves through trial and error. Humans are funny. We often need to find ways to trick our own brains in order to take the actions that we already know and believe are in our best interests. What I've observed is that when we pay for something, we make a commitment to it. Paying for something is definitely not the only way to make a commitment, and it doesn't always work. But in my experience, it's one of the most powerful ways to inspire action. For example, in the beginning of this year, I borrowed several thousand dollars to pay for an online marketing course. Most of the information was already available for free from different sources. And I knew that that would be the case because that's, that's how it is. That's the environment that we're in. But because of the investment and the structure of the course, I was supported and inspired to take action on that information in a way that I never had before. So I'm really glad I made that investment. It was worth every penny and it led straight to this podcast. On the other end, from the teacher's side, getting fairly compensated helps us as teachers by reducing the risk of burnout. We all have finite resources when it comes to time and energy. When we pour our heart and our soul into teaching, as so many of us do, most of us do, there needs to be some return so that we can keep going. Of course, some of that return is the appreciation from our students. That is why I believe that yoga teachers are so often willing to work so hard for so little money. We get a taste of the powerful effect that yoga can have on our own lives. We start sharing it with others, 
And we get addicted to helping others experience that magic. It is really uplifting and energizing. Now, the difference between, I use this term addiction, use it on purpose. There's a difference between managed dependence and addiction, which begs the question, is it, is it manageable? For example, I'm dependent on coffee. I will admit this. I drink it every day. I have no desire to stop because it boosts my mood and my productivity. Now, and I, I love the taste. I love everything about it. <laughs> I could do a whole podcast episode on coffee, but I will spare you. If I started noticing health effects from drinking coffee, like I sleep like a baby. I shut my eyes. Now, sometimes I ha- it takes me a little while to fall asleep, but once I'm out, I'm pretty much out until morning. So, but for example, if I started noticing that that wasn't happening and I connected it to coffee, if my quality of life was being reduced, if it was causing problems in my relationships, yeah, then it would be, I would think of it more as an addiction rather than a dependence. So here's an interesting inquiry. Is your habit of teaching yoga sustaining you or draining you? Do you stress about money on a regular basis? Do you make decisions around your teaching from a place of fear about not having enough? For example, do you keep classes that are not really a good fit for you because you're afraid of not being able to replace the income? If any of these are ringing a bell for you, then it's worth continuing some deeper inquiry into the relationship between yoga and money. And to me, I think it's always worth doing inquiry because that is such a huge part of what yoga is about. Although I believe that engaging in commerce, even around yoga, is morally neutral, your behavior as you run a business is not morally neutral. As a business owner, you will come across many, many choices that will test your ethics. If you behave in good faith with transparency and compassion, your yoga business is going to be a force of good in the world. It's kind of ironic because as I was recording this, I was interrupted by a really, I want to say fortuitous conversation that happened on social media with Alexandria Crow, who is a force for ethics in yoga. She's a, a loud voice for ethics in yoga. And what we started to dive into was ethical behavior in the yoga industry and more specifically unethical behavior. And it kind of led me to this realization that the reason that she believes that there's more unethical behavior in the yoga industry than in other industries that we don't think of as so ethical. And that was kind of shocking to me, but she's way more connected than I am. So I totally believe her. But it made me realize that it's about the shadow because as yoga teachers, we often, you know, we're not supposed to, to talk about our shadow. We're not, we're supposed to be above unethical behavior as yogis. And so that expectation, rather than driving us to be more ethical, drives us to hide it. And when we hide it, when we push our shadow into the background, when we, you know, engage in subterfuge and, and whether we're not looking at it ourselves or we're just not letting other people look at it, that is what gives it power. I actually believe that 
thinking about money more is going to cause you or help you to behave more ethically with it. If we focus on learn about and build systems around money management, then when it comes time to make decisions around it, you will have pre-made some of those decisions. There'll be less um, less burden on your executive functioning, less burden on your rational, logical brain so that you can make those decisions, you can pre-make those decisions when you're in a good space and you don't have to make them or you're less likely to have to make them when you might be in a place of fear or lack or depletion, which is when kind of your more ancient brain is likely to hijack and you won't even notice that that happened. Let's turn to some concepts from yoga philosophy, from the yoga sutras that can help give some information and some context and some ideas about how to do this. As yogis looking at money and finances, I always like to return to the teachings of Abhyasa Vairagya. And if my dear friend Kaya Midlin is listening to this, I may have butchered that pronunciation. Kaya does a Sanskrit Saturdays on Instagram where she helps to uh, go through some common mispronunciations of really frequently used Sanskrit words in the yoga world. So check that out. I will add a link in the show notes so that you can find her easily. So Abhyasa Vairagya are balancing forces. Abhyasa is translated as consistent steady practice. So our approach to money can follow this guideline of being rational, steady, consistent. Vairagya is the state of non-attachment, that holds the perspectives of our true selves at the center. I've heard a lot of teachings about letting go of results come from this pairing of abhyasa vairagya. You show up day after day to your practice, but you don't know what your practice is going to be like. You don't know what the actual result is going to be that day, and you show up anyway. And the more that you show up without expectations, the more fully you can be present with what is there. On a practical level, we do understand that we need money to survive. Whether it's somebody else's money, using their money to help us survive, or if we own it and manage it ourselves. But we don't necessarily need a particular dollar. Our money can come from many different places. If a certain opportunity doesn't pan out, if we have a system in place, we can find what the next opportunity is going to be instead of agonizing over a loss that wasn't ours to begin with. To some degree, the ability to practice abhyasa vairagya around money is also an area of privilege, just like teaching yoga for free. Now, I will say that where I live in the U.S., Most of us are so comfortable that even the poorest of us have smartphones, cable TV, and full bellies. I personally spent many years as a single mom, and I had about 50-50% of my income was from teaching yoga, and 50% was from web design. So I've got a good bit of experience navigating being in a space that is not at least financially privileged. And I will say that from my experience, 
when your basic needs are met, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and the base, the base ones, the big ones are shelter, safety, and food. And then in our culture, I think to some degree, transportation is, is part of that. Um, it is possible to practice non-attachment in regards to money, meaning it's also discernment. It's separating out the reactions, the fear reactions you have around money, the stories you have around money from the reality of what it is, which is a representation of energy. It is potential. It is capacity. I have been really interested in some of the studies from positive psychology that show that money up to a certain point does correlate with more happiness. So we don't, that does not mean that centering money in your life, making money the central focus of your life is a sure path to happiness. I would say far from that. But what we know as yoga teachers and as practitioners is that centering an awareness of the inherent connection that exists through all living things is what supports our ability to appreciate happy moments and also find peace in difficult ones. That is a practice that can be attempted in any circumstance. That is a practice that can be attempted even when you're not safe, even when you are hungry. And it, <laughs> it is still makes sense for us to seek the safety, to seek the means to, to live a life where we get to pursue the higher aims in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the aims of connection and fulfillment and self-actualization. One of the healthiest things I believe that we can do for ourselves in this realm is to start noticing what stories we tell ourselves about money, especially the ones that are neither true nor helpful. Once we do that, then we can start replacing those stories which, with ones that are helpful. Notice that I did not say that they needed to be true. I mean, they should definitely be true enough that you can believe them, but there are so many levels of truth, and some topics lend themselves to distinct categories of true and untrue, like gravity. Most other topics have layers and shades of truth that might be impossible to peel apart and you could lead to analysis paralysis if you're like, I can't, I can't choose a new story unless I'm 100,000% sure that it's true. You might never start telling yourself new stories. In these cases, I believe that looking for versions of the truth that are helpful in alignment with our values and that lead to a more compassionate world. So if we can find that combination helpful, fit with our values, and lead to compassion, then I think that that's good enough. The opportunity here is to get clear on our core values and our goals, and from there create policies and boundaries around money so that we don't have to think so much about it. The more clear our policies and procedures are, the less time and effort that we need to put into decisions that otherwise might feel complex. They get made in advance and they don't take up emotional energy in the moment. And this frees up your brain to do other higher level functioning, to be more creative, more disciplined, and more productive. 
As an example of a story, a new story you could tell yourself, I hear a lot of people who teach money mindset work teach that money is just energy, that it's morally neutral. I think I might have kind of said this a little ways prior in the episode myself. And I think it's true, but I want to also circle back around and emphasize that the way you obtain money and the way you use money is not morally neutral. That can be either in alignment with your core values, which will give you energy, will, it will be self-perpetuating in a way, or out of alignment with your core values, which is going to drain you because that is a conflict that's going to be an inner conflict inside your own brain that your brain needs to manage and resolve and it's going to try to work on it and that is going to be draining. To look for yogic teachings on this topic, I find it helpful to go to the Purusharthas, which are originally found in the Vedas. The Purusharthas are the aims or the goals of human life. In the Vedas, there are three, dharma, the pursuit of your true calling, artha, the resources that give you the means to live your life as you wish, and kama, pleasure, or emotional fulfillment. In later texts, such as the Upanishads, the Upanishads are often considered the first yogic teachings, the Vedas more precursors to yoga. Another pursuit was added in the Upanishads, moksha or liberation. Across the centuries, Hindus and yogis have debated about the relative importance of each. So it's not like the yogic teachings. This is something that I think is really important for us to remember as modern yogis, that the yogic teachings are not one clearly delineated method. They are incredibly diverse and people have been interpreting them and even arguing about their meanings and implications the entire time that yoga has been around. So for centuries and centuries and possibly millennia, most people agree this is from the different sources that I looked at for this podcast. Most agreed that dharma comes first for a reason, that it is primary. So the pursuit of pleasure and resources should not come at the expense of your duty. Artha, meaning resources like money, is some believe the foundation upon which the other pursuits rest. Without resources, you will not be able to pursue your other aims. So you need resources even to pursue your dharma. You need resources to fulfill your duty. Most of the resources I looked at for this episode agree that the pursuit of kama or pleasure should only happen when not in conflict with the other aims of life, meaning in terms of priority, it's the lowest. But it is not morally wrong to pursue pleasure. These are, these are understood to be important motivations and important aspects of human life. The fourth Purushartha, the one that was added later in the Upanishads, moksha, is the final and ultimate goal of human life from both a Hindu and a yogic perspective. And I know this gets a little bit fuzzy here, and I'm not the right person to exactly distinguish the difference between Hinduism and yoga they are interrelated, but not the same. You can practice yoga and be of any religion 
but it's important to understand that yoga came from Hinduism and have a, a respect for that origin when we practice yoga. So there are different schools of thought about whether moksha should actually be the primary aim instead of dharma, whether it's something you can achieve only after death, or whether you work can work on it throughout. I mean, you can work on it throughout your whole life, but some traditions, especially from a more Hindu perspective, there are these there are these stages of life where you would focus more in your householder time, for example, when you have children, you would focus more on your um, pursuit of artha. I'm not even sure if it's artha or artha. I'm, I have this instinct to say artha. And later on, after your children are grown, then you would really dedicate yourself to moksha. To choose moksha as your primary goal in life is to become a sannyasa or a renunciate. For these seekers, there is only moksha moderated by dharma. In other words, your pursuit of liberation is balanced only by your duty, and you devote yourself and you commit to no seeking of pleasure or resources. Sannyasas are beggars, and they do not pursue or accumulate any wealth. They do not pursue pleasure. There are cultures where the sannyasa is an understood and respectable life path. To choose this path in a culture that does not acknowledge or support it is definitely um, a very intense version of an already difficult road. I don't personally know of any sannyasas in the West where I live. I do know some people who see poverty as a spiritual path, and my relationship with these people has not convinced me that it's a quicker or more effective road to enlightenment or to growth or to anything. They don't seem better off emotionally or spiritually than the rest of us. Now, I'm not saying that I have the answers on that topic for sure, but my experience leads me to believe that money leads to the freedom to live more ethically and to center spiritual practice in your life. That if you are always broke, then your nervous system is going to be more geared towards the sympathetic. You're, you're designed for survival. Your body is designed for survival. And if your survival, the more guaranteed your survival is, the more you know padding you have around that, the more you can devote towards other aims, towards higher pursuits. On the other hand, if you are in survival mode, there are parts of your brain, there are ancient parts of your brain that are going to act in ways to ensure your survival that may not be in alignment with your values. And you're not even you're not going to be able to prevent that because it's such a deeply ingrained pattern in the human brain that has been successful for us. It has worked. It has gotten us to where we are. The advice on the aims of life from the Bhagavad Gita is to pursue dharma, artha, and kama through the lens of moksha. To me, this has some overlap with the idea I shared earlier about abhyasa and vairagya. The liberated being is not attached to material things and yet takes the actions to pursue their goals, whether duty, material comforts, or fleeting pleasure. Through the ups and downs of embodiment, they remain focused on the unconditional happiness that arises through practice. 
through wisdom, through understanding. Non-attachment is a concept that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about, especially when people first start practicing yoga. It can be even a little bit of a triggering concept. I've heard a lot of pushback when I would teach in teacher trainings from some students of, well, I don't want to be non-attached. I don't want to be like a zombie, you know, just living through life without feeling anything. And the way that I think about it is, is non-attachment is not this pure ideal that's actually attainable. It's a direction to move that is going to balance out the extreme attachment that is more of our human instinct and our human nature. The less attached I am, the more I practice non-attachment, the more freedom and peace that I experience. Could I one day walk the earth as a liberated being completely unattached to the outcome of each action I take? I don't have a clue. Maybe. I'm so far from that I can't even imagine it. But over time, as I continue to practice, I feel closer. I, as I take steps in that direction, I feel more at ease, more content, more love. And that is so worthwhile. I am personally in no danger of not having any feelings, not having any goals. I mean, this is just the condition of being human is that there's all this stuff going on all this input from the outside world, all of these reactions happening on the inside and smoothing those out has been nothing, not that I'm smooth by any means, y'all, but working to smooth that out has been nothing but beneficial for me. So those are my thoughts. Those are my current thoughts about money and yoga. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love for you to come onto the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group if you are a member. If you're not yet, you can go to teachingyoga.net slash join. Sign up for the Facebook group. Make sure that you answer the questions that I ask. Even if the answer is no, that's fine. I just want to see that people are reading, paying attention, and, and can follow instructions. And you can also sign up for my email list there. Let's continue the conversation. Let's talk about these things. And most especially, let's make sure that we keep looking at our own shadows. We talk about our potential challenges with that, and we don't push them into a corner. We don't ignore them. Instead, we really become willing to see them and hold space for them. This is like a metaphor here, of course, the shadow, the metaphor of the shadow, the side of ourselves that we want to hide. Let's stop hiding and let's reduce the amount of influence it has over us in that way. I hope you have a wonderful week. Make sure that you set aside time and make your personal practice a priority. I will need that advice also the week that this episode is released. I'm going to be getting ready to head to the Netherlands to see my sister who just had twins. So I think I mentioned this last week in in the last week's episode that 
trying to leave my family, organizing everything to leave my family for two weeks is really daunting. And so I know that I'm going to be tempted to get caught up in the busyness of all of it. And I need, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. I am committed to sticking with my practice even during that time. And I hope you are too. Have a wonderful week.